Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. Thank you for joining us here on our online services. We are journeying through the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 8, but before we get there, I want to ask you kind of, kind of an odd question maybe to entertain in a church service. And maybe not, but let me put it before you. Let me ask you this question. What are the tools of Satan? What are the tools of Satan? What does he use in our lives to derail us from the blessings of God? You see, when we follow God's design, we experience God's blessing. When we obey his commands, we get to live under his blessings. Now, when we don't follow God's design, when we, when we disobey, when we move away from his commands, we experience brokenness. We experience brokenness. Now, if the consequence of our disobedience is, is the experience of brokenness, then, then how can Satan sell us on the idea to disobey? How can he make it appealing to us to disobey God's commands? What does he use? Well, I think one tool is just simply to lie to us, to lie to us, to convince us to rebel, to convince us that there is some good outside of God's design. Uh, This is what Satan did in the very beginning. We see this when he first spoke to humanity. He convinced Eve, he said, that if you disobey, no, you're not going to die, and you'll actually be like God. You see that strategy? Very simple. Just right up front, it's a bold face lie. He said, if you disobey, you're not going to experience anything bad. And if you disobey, you'll actually experience something very great. You'll be like God. So one of the strategies and tools of Satan is very simple. It's, it's straightforward. It's plain and right before us. He simply lies to us and tells us rebellion is better. But there's another tool. There's another strategy. There's another thing that he uses. And this one actually may shock you. This tool may shock you because this one's not plain. It's, it's not simple. It's not clear. It's, it's more cunning. It's more deceptive. And the tool he uses is this. He uses religion. Religion. See, religion is a, is a system, a system of beliefs and practices, things that we do to relate to God. That's what a religion is. And so what Satan uses is false religion. And he's deceptive in this. He convinces us that we're acting right when we're actually acting wrong. He convinces us that we're relating to God when we're actually in rebellion to God. This is not plain. It's not straightforward. It's not out there. It's very deceptive. Satan's greatest deception is our self-deception. It's convincing us we're okay when we're not okay. Convincing us that we're right with God when we're not right with God. Let me show you this in John chapter 8, in our passage this morning, John chapter 8, and we're going to look at verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. And before I read that passage, let me give you the big idea for this morning. Then the main idea, I think, of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 8. The main idea is this. Satan likes religion. You're going to write down anything. I want you to write this down. Satan likes religion. Now, again, what what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. Religion, again, is that system of beliefs and practices. And why would Satan like a system of beliefs and practices that is designed to get us to relate to God? It's because he uses it in a very deceptive way. He uses it in a way to make us think we're okay when we're actually not okay. You see, the greatest way to keep somebody in chains is to do it with invisible chains. Ones they cannot see. Ones they're not aware of. Ones they've just been deceived to not be aware that they're actually there. A great way to keep somebody enslaved is to keep them deceived that they're actually not enslaved. Let me show you how Jesus makes this point in John chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 31. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to speak of what he can do for this crowd. What he can do for these listeners. He's going to speak to them and tell them, I, I'm here to liberate you. I'm here to free you. 
I, I am the Savior that has come to free you from the power of sin. And they're going to look at Jesus and say, what are you talking about? We, we don't need that. We're okay. And the reason they're going to say that is because, well, they have religion. Their religion makes them feel safe. And Jesus will try to show them that their religion is false. It is, is hollow. It is one that is actually crafted by the devil. They are deceived. Let me show you this. Again, that big idea, Satan likes religion. Let's look at verse 31. Jesus interacts with this crowd. Verse 31, he says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. So we're kind of continuing from where we were Last week, Jesus was teaching, talking about how he had the power to save, how he had the power to deliver us from the bondage of sin. And some in the crowd responded with a sense of belief. And it says here that that same crowd is the one that's being addressed. It's the Jews who believe. Now, at first we hear that word and we think, hey, this is pretty good. They believed. So everything is, is okay. They're good with Jesus. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that when the gospel writer John uses that term believe, it doesn't always mean that it's authentic and sincere. It can be shallow and insincere. It cannot be genuine. It could be false. And I think we'll see as it builds out in this conversation that this is not a sincere and genuine belief. But Jesus addresses them and he wants to clarify the belief that they should have. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is Jesus saying? Okay, you show a sign of belief. Now let me tell you what true belief looks like. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You're truly my followers. What does he mean by abide? What he's saying there is if you remain in my teaching, meaning if you obey my commands, if you follow my instructions, basically if your behavior changes, I know your belief was real. If your behavior doesn't change, then I know your belief wasn't real. If you truly believe in me, your behavior, your actions will change. So Jesus makes it clear to them, guys, you need to show a good behavior to to prove to me that your belief is genuine. And if your belief is genuine, not only will this behavior change, but you will experience truth. You will know truth, and that truth will set you free. What does Jesus mean there? He's saying you'll know the truth, and what he's not talking about there is just information will be given. That's true, and knowing truth, of course, the mind is involved. That Jesus is going to fill in the gaps for them. He's going to correct the errors and give them new information. You're going to know truth. There's some information that's going to be given. But then Jesus says more is going to be experienced. It's not just information. It's liberation. You will be liberated. The truth will set you free. Free. What does he mean by that? We, we, we've been given hints already before we get to this point. If you just look in John chapter 5, in verse 24, it says this, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Right there, Jesus said a lot of things that are going to happen. He says you're not going to face condemnation. You're not going to face judgment. You're going to experience eternal life. You're going to live as you were designed to live. You're not going to face condemnation. You're not going to face judgment for your actions. You're going to be liberated from the consequences of your sin. We saw even more in John chapter 8 verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You will be free from darkness, free from condemnation, free from death. You will know how to live. Your path will be lit. You will know the right way to live. This is the freedom that Jesus is talking about here. You're going to be freed from the mastery and the power of sin and death. You will no longer be ruled anymore. Now that sounds like really great news. I mean, everything sounds good. Everything sounds positive. 
But then this crowd responds. And they don't understand. They're shocked by Jesus. Jesus looks at them and says, guys, I can see that you're enslaved. I can see that you have chains on you. You have shackles. I can, I can clearly see that you need to be liberated, liberated. You need to be set free. And the response is going to be one of shock. Jesus, we don't see what you see. Jesus, you're speaking about liberation. We don't need liberation. We don't need to be freed. We're okay. Look at the response of the crowd. Verse 33. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, I have to be honest. When I was reading this passage and I was studying this passage, I laughed. I laughed. Just right after reading that phrase, I, I laughed. When, he, when they say we are offspring of Abraham, we have never been enslaved. It's so incredibly silly. I was talking with Pastor Phil about this passage, and we both remarked at just the, the utter humor of this passage. If you're familiar with the Bible or you're familiar with ancient history, for somebody to say that the Jews have never been enslaved, the people of Israel have never been enslaved, it's just a really silly comment. Because honestly, it's really hard to find an, a power in the ancient world that the Jews were not at one time enslaved to. They were enslaved to Egypt. They were enslaved to Assyria, uh, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the, uh, Egypt again, Syria, and now Rome. I mean, the only one that they didn't get was like China. There was no uh, 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 dynasty in China that ever ruled them. How could they honestly say this? What could they honestly be thinking here? Oh, I don't think they're talking about being politically enslaved. I don't think they're talking about being politically liberated. I think they're talking spiritually. I think they're thinking in the same kind of lens as Jesus. Jesus says you need to be set free. You need to know the truth, the truth I'm giving, and that truth needs to set you free, free from the power of sin and death, free from condemnation, free from living in darkness. I think they are thinking on the same level as Jesus. They're not thinking politically. They're thinking spiritually. Another clue to that is their reasoning for why they don't need this liberation. They say we are offspring of Abraham. If they were thinking in kind of a political uh, uh, idea, why would they mention Abraham? Abraham was not a political leader. Abraham was a model of faith. Abraham was the one who received God's covenant, God's agreement, God's promise. God came to Abraham and told him, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but not just you. I'm going to bless your family tree forever. Forever I will bless your family tree. I will be your God, and I will be the God of your family all the way in the future. And through your family tree, I'm going to bless the nations. Everyone will be blessed because of your family, Abraham. And the Jews prided themselves on this, this attachment to Abraham, falling in the heritage of Abraham. And they believed that because they were in the line of Abraham, that, that salvation was promised to his descendants forever and all of his descendants. By, by sheerly being in the right family tree, they were always going to be right with God. We see this before Jesus even enters the scene when John the Baptist is doing his ministry. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, we see the same kind of idea, and, and John the Baptist would rebuke them for it. John the Baptist says in John chapter 3, verse 9, as he's seeing a group of religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, he says to them in verse 9 of Matthew 3, Do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham. As our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. What is he saying there? Don't use that argument on me that you are right, that you are okay, that you will be saved. Don't use this argument on me that simply because you're a descendant of Abraham, that you're okay. 
See, the Jews felt here with Jesus, we're okay. How can you say we need to be set free? We don't need to be set free. We're already free. We're already spiritually free because of our our religious heritage. We're okay. Our religion will keep us safe. Again, Jesus does not share that idea. He looks at them and he can spiritually see the bondage that they're in. And he pushes to convince them of this spiritual bondage. Look at what he says in verse 34. It says, so Jesus answered them, surely, or sorry, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. What does Jesus say there? Guys, you're you're enslaved. It's incredibly clear. Why is it clear to Jesus? Because they are practicing sin. He says anybody who practices sin is a slave to sin. They're bound to sin and therefore they need to be set free. And this is what Jesus is offering. And Jesus says you are prime candidates for this because I know that you are enslaved. Because you practice sin. Your behavior betrays the integrity of your belief. You don't have true faith. You don't have true belief because I see it in your behaviors. You are practicing sin, therefore you are mastered by sin. Now, what what sin is Jesus talking about? How could he be so convinced that he knows they are practicing sin in a habit of sin, characterized by sin? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 37, and he picks a very specific and egregious sin. What does he say? You seek to kill me. You're plotting to murder me. Well, that's a pretty good one. I mean, if you wanted to convince somebody that they weren't spiritually right, murder, murder would be a pretty persuasive argument to say that somebody is not spiritually right, that they're spiritually sick. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus knows, you know why I know that you are not spiritually healthy? is because you are plotting to murder me. You are seeking to take me out. You are seeking to eliminate me. You want to kill the Son of God. This is how I know you don't love God. It's because you are seeking to kill me. Wow. Now here's what Jesus will do. Jesus will almost take their argument and say, okay, you want to claim Abraham. I can't convince you that you're enslaved to sin. I can't convince you that you're in spiritual bondage. The deception is deeper and you're falling back on your religious heritage. So then Jesus moves the argument and says, fine, then let me me sever the connection you have with Abraham. Let me show you that, that, that you're not actually connected to Abraham. Let's continue on in the conversation here, starting with verse 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the things Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, your father did. What is Jesus saying? Again, Jesus acknowledges, okay, you're sons of Abraham, but you're not acting like Abraham. You don't behave like Abraham. Right? His argument is, is, is fairly simple. If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. Again, it, it's the same line of reasoning Jesus has already used. The reason I know you don't believe is because of how you behave. You're not acting, you're not acting like Abraham. Who was Abraham? Abraham was a man of great faith, a man of great obedience. Abraham was the one who, when God said, I want you to move, he says, okay, I'll go. Abraham was the one when God said, okay, I'm going to give you a son. 
I'm going to give you a son. Even though you are beyond uh, the age to bear a child, I will miraculously, supernaturally make you have a child. Your wife will bear a son, and I will bless the world through that son. I will give you a family, even though right now you don't have a family, and you're beyond the time of starting a family. I will do something. I will step in, and he believed. And then when that boy, that promised child, came to be and he grew a little bit, God said, okay, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice that child. I want you to offer him up on an altar as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham did exactly what God asked him to do. Now, God never planned for Abraham to take his life. God intervened to show us a picture, a picture of the cross that, that, that God was willing to sacrifice his son. And we see this in a model of faith in Abraham, that he was willing to sacrifice his son. But look at this man. This man is a man of great faith. He believes God at his word. And he obeys God in all of his words. And Jesus is saying, you're nothing like that. You are not men of faith. You are not men of obedience. You don't believe the words that I'm saying. You don't believe that I'm the son of God. And you don't seek to obey me. You don't seek to abide and remain in my word. You seek to destroy me. Clearly, you are not like Abraham. You should not feel connected to him because you're not acting like him. Well, Jesus has kind of really been aggressive, I would say, in his argumentation. He's backed them against the corner there. What do you do when you're backed in a corner? You lash out, right? You, 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 maybe your, your argument didn't work, and so you feel this emotional fear that, 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 the, that the other argument is overtaking you. So you just kind of, you, you, you play the higher card. You, you play the, the, the be- best card in your hand. You think of the, the best argument in the heat of the moment. Well, how much higher can they go than Abraham? Than the, than the father of the Jewish people? How much higher could they go? Well, they could go all the way to God. And this is exactly how they respond. It says, you are doing the works of your father, or your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. We are God's children. Now, I think Jesus, in a sense, would respond to this, okay. It's true, you are descendants of of Abraham. Jesus actually uses that description of uh, some Jewish people and his interaction with different Israelites in the Gospel of Luke two times. He would acknowledge they are descendants from Abraham. He would acknowledge that they are the people of God. He would acknowledge that God chose Israel to be his people. But then Jesus again says, but no. Yes, you're descendants of Abraham, but no. No, you're not acting like him, so you're not connected to him. Yes, God did choose you as his nation among all the nations to be a blessing to all the nations. But that doesn't mean that you're right with God. And he uses the same line of reasoning. I know you're not aligned with God. I know your belief's not right. Why? Because your behavior does not match. You don't act like Abraham. You do not act like God. Look at Jesus, what Jesus says. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. What is he saying? I am connected. I am connected to God. God, God sent me. I am God's Son, I speak the words that he speaks. We are in a relationship. Right? We, we love each other. There, there is unity between us. So if you were like God, then you would love me like he loves me. You would be connected to me. There would be unity between us. But all you do is reject me. Abraham is not your father. God is not your father. Well, then who is the father of this religion? Where do we look to? for the architect of their religion, for their religious heritage. Who has built this system? If it's not Abraham, 
and it's not God, then who is the master of this system? The system that they're following, the system that makes them believe that they're secure. It's Satan. It's the devil. I mean, this is when Jesus really presses the truth right in front of his hearers. He's hinted at it. But he hasn't told them yet the name. He's said on a couple of occasions, you're doing what your father did. You're doing what your father did. You're acting like your father. And he's eliminated God and he's eliminated Abraham as their father. No, you're not connected to them because you don't behave like them. You don't act like them. He says, there's something that's missing in you. You don't love. You don't have faith. You're not committed to me. Who you're committed to is a different father who has deceived you. And that is the devil. Look at what Jesus says. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. Now imagine just receiving this word. Receiving this word as a devout Jew. These are not unreligious, non-religious men. These are deeply committed religious men. These, these, these are men and, and maybe women as well who have committed their lives to the study of, of the Old Testament. Who, whose, whose calendars and social life is really just, just filled with, with many religious practices. Their, their whole devotion is clear to, to everybody else. But Jesus is the one who with a penetrating gaze can see the true reality that's inside them. That their religion is built by the devil. All the outward trappings of their religion mean nothing. Because internally, inside, they do not love God. They do not have faith in his son. What an incredible deception. Satan's greatest deception is our self-deception. Convincing us that we're right when we're wrong. Convincing us that we're okay with God when we're actually rebelling against God. But this is not new. This kind of danger is not something that Jesus is the only one speaking about. This is a danger that has been spoken about in hundreds of years before Jesus. In the prophet Jeremiah, I'll give you one instance in which God spoke about this. To show you that Jesus isn't really new and novel here in his appraisal that there needs to be an inward commitment and not just an an, an outward reality. Look at the prophet Jeremiah. Speak to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25. Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Circumcision was a, was a symbol of, God's, of a commitment to God. It, w- it was a symbol that, that, that these people were marked out in devotion to God. And Jeremiah says, there's a day that is coming. I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. So they only have the outward trappings of being religious. Now look at his list. Look at his list. He says, first, Egypt. That feels comfortable. Okay, Egypt, those are the ones who enslaved God's people. Those are the ones who did not worship the one true God. But look at who's next. Judah. That's the southern kingdom of Israel. Judah. How is is Judah on there? The list continues on. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, for all the nations are uncircumcised. And listen to this. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. They're missing a true love and devotion for me. Their belief is not real. It's not real. 
after Jesus, the same kind of critique was given. Jeremiah gave it. Jesus gave it. The Apostle Paul gives it in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision the symbol of an agreement and a covenant being set apart for God, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. This isn't a new point. Right? This, this, this point and this sort of critique is littered throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, on the lips of Jesus. Jesus will not allow them to lean on their spiritual, spiritual heritage alone. Their religious heritage alone. Something is missing. And the one that has convinced you that the outward is okay, that simple religious heritage is going to keep you safe, that this system in religion is going to keep you safe and keep you right with God, the one that's convinced you of that is the devil. The devil, the bad guy of the Bible. Look at how Jesus shows this. In the same form of argument, notice this. Jesus will say, I know you're of the devil because you behave like him. Jesus' argument has been simple. I know you're not of Abraham because you don't behave like him. You don't have faith like him. You don't obey like him. I know you're not of God. Why? Because you don't behave like him. Well, who are they behaving like? Who does their inward devotion really go to? The devil. And he says, let me show you how you behave like your father, the devil. This again, John chapter 5. We're going to pick up at verse 43. Sorry, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. What is he saying there? Here's the hallmarks of who the devil is. He is a murderer and he is a liar. And what is Jesus saying? This is exactly what you're going to do. You're going to murder me and you are lying. You're not accepting my truth and you will say false claims about me. The devil was known from this from the very, very beginning. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When he told Eve, you're surely not going to die if you disobey God. You're going to be okay. What happened? Mankind disobeyed God and they died. So in a sense, Satan murdered mankind. Brought death upon them. Physical and spiritual. It wasn't immediate for Adam and Eve, at least physically. It was spiritually. But he's the one who brought death. He was the murderer of mankind. All of humanity now is under the curse of sin and death because of Satan's lie that was believed. And he is that liar. He's a murderer and a liar. God said in Genesis chapter 2, if you eat of this, you will surely die. In Genesis 3, Satan says, if you eat of it, you will not surely die. He said the same thing God said, but he put a knot right in the middle of it. He lied, and what happened? Death happened. And Jesus is saying, this is exactly what you're doing. This is how I know that the devil has designed your religion. It's because it makes you behave exactly like him. But Jesus doesn't want them to stay here. And maybe at the end of our passage, we see that there's a glimmer of hope. Jesus still wants to be the one to liberate them from sin, from the bondage of sin, a bondage they cannot see, a bondage that they're blind to because of the deception of Satan that they have bought into. Look what Jesus says. Maybe a last point to convince them in our passage. Jesus says this in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? But we know that they believe Jesus is a sinner. 
We've seen this since John chapter 5. We know that they believe that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. We also know that they believe Jesus is a blasphemer, that he's making himself equal to God. So I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, you guys say that I'm sinless. I don't, I don't think Jesus is making that point. I don't think Jesus is saying, do, do any of you think I'm guilty? I think what Jesus is saying, can any of you prove it? Can any of you prove that I'm guilty? And if you cannot prove it, if you have no credible witnesses and no crucial evidence, then maybe you should listen to me. Jesus would make the same point on his trial in John chapter 18. Look what Jesus says. You you can't convict me of sin. So if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I'm telling you the truth. And you can see that I'm telling you the truth. Why? Because how I behave. You notice that? You can't convict me of sin. You can't find me guilty. And yet, even though you have no shred of evidence against me, you can't hear my words. Satan likes religion. He likes to deceive us. Deceive us and convince us that we are not rebelling against God when we actually are rebelling against God. He likes to convince us that we're okay with God when we're actually not okay with God. He likes religion. I would say he even loves it. It keeps us from seeing the true spiritual bondage that we're in. When we're deceived, we can't see how spiritually sick we are. We can't see how how severe the bondage is. We can't see how, how detrimental our situation is. We can't see and feel the coming condemnation. We're missing it because he has blinded us with his deception and he has given us the false security of religion. I think this is an incredibly significant passage for us today. Specifically for us as Americans. You see, in America, we, we have a rich heritage. A rich Christian heritage. And this is a, a, a helpful thing. And it's a harmful thing. It's helpful in the sense of it gives us a solid moral foundation to build a thriving society. It's harmful because this Christian heritage can convince us that we're okay, even though there's no inward change in us. I think Satan not only likes the religion of America, I think he loves many parts of the religion of America. I I think he loves how the census numbers and the church numbers don't match. I think he loves that how many decisions, emotional decisions are made for Jesus, but how few disciples of Jesus there really are. Did you know that American adults... 65% of American adults, 65% of American adults say that they're Christian. 65%. It's a huge number. And yet only 25% of American adults are practicing Christians. 65% will tell you, similar to, well, we're children of Abraham. Well, of course we're Christians. We're American. God's on our money. 65% will say they're Christian, and yet only 25% are practicing Christian. I think he loves that disparity. A 40% disparity. That's almost 100 million Americans who are deceived. Deceived in thinking they're okay 
with God. That they're right with God. That their religious heritage will keep them safe. All the while being enslaved to the power of sin and death. All the while on the road to condemnation at the end of their life. I think he loves our religion. So let me ask you, are you convinced of your Christianity because of your heritage or because of your habits? Why do I say habits? Because that's Jesus' argumentation this entire chapter has been what? I know what you believe based on how you behave. So when you think of your Christianity, are you convinced of the truthfulness of of your Christianity because of your heritage? Your family is Christian. Your, Your nation is Christian. Are you convinced of it because it has actually changed your life? It has actually transformed you. You look liberated. You look like you have experienced truth. You know truth. And that truth has set you free. That the Son has set you free. Free, that you've been liberated from from the power of sin and death. You're not walking in darkness. You have victory over sin. You're not perfect. It's not that you never sin. You do make mistakes and sin, but sin is no longer your master. When you sin, it's a mistake, but sin is not your master. Do you show yourself to be liberated? As followers of Jesus Christ, Let me ask you, in this season that we're in, have you shown yourself to be liberated from sin? To truly have been set free from the powers of sin and death? And I know it has been a hard season. Trust me. I know it's been a hard season. I I know it's been incredibly difficult just to exist in the last almost year that we've existed. I know that. I know this time and this season, none of us, none of us are probably at our best in this season. I know that. And I'm not here to to try to put an oversense of guilt upon you. But what I want to ask you And what I think is very healthy as a sense of self-examination is to ask ourselves, what have we shown to our friends and family? Have we shown them that we've been liberated from sin? Have we shown them that we have been set free? Have we shown them that we are not mastered by sin? Have we shown them love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are all the fruits of the Holy Spirit as Paul describes in the book of Galatians. Have we shown them love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Have we done that? I know as we have been socially distanced and we have been staying at home and we've been working remotely, much of our activity is now on social media platforms. Right? Whatever the one of, of your choice, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or, or TikTok, or Snapchat, or whatever it is. Let me ask you just to do kind of an honest evaluation. Has your social media life your digital life been one that shows love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And this is why I worry about how we answer that question. And I don't know if you feel it, but I feel it. I feel the severity of the moment right now. I I, I think we're at a pivotal time as a nation right now. The nation has literally 
The world has literally been bombarded daily with a death toll. Every day being updated by the more and more people who are dying. The world, think about it. The world, humanity, all of mankind is incredibly convinced of the frailty of this life. How fragile our existence is. They know that we are mortal. They feel it. They're reminded of it. And we as Christians have the opportunity to speak hope. And I would argue we as Christians have the only message of hope that can be spoken at this moment that is true, that is real, that is not just just, just romantic and wishful thinking. It's just not a childhood dream that keeps me away from the fear of the boogeyman. Christianity is real. There is a historical Jesus Christ who lived. The God-man showed that by his death and resurrection. And he extends to us the forgiveness of sins and the liberty from sin and death. And what I'm afraid of is that as Christians, as the church, not just in America, but in, in a global sense, we will spoil the moment. We will ruin the moment. Because we cannot display self-control in how we speak. And I don't want to lose this moment. And God does not want us to lose this moment. So evaluate. And I know it's hard. I know I've not been my best self during this time. But God has made us a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have a moment like no church or group of believers have ever had in human history. We have a moment. And Satan would love to distract and divide. To split the forces, if you will. To make them fight on two fronts. He would love to do that. Let's not do that. Let's not lose our focus. Let's not lose our character in this. Let's display that we have been liberated from sin and death. Let our character show that our message is convincing. May the clarity of our message not be hindered by the lack of our character. Now maybe you're here and you're you're, you're listening to this and you're not even yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Or, Or maybe, better said, Maybe you would say you're a Christian, or, or at least you've, you've held on to the title of Christian as a sense of your spiritual heritage. Maybe you realize that you made that emotional decision in the past, but your life really hasn't lined up with that decision. That outwardly, you, you claim that you follow Jesus, but you know inwardly. Maybe you've convinced others. Maybe you've convinced yourself. But as you think about it, you realize that your life does not show that you've been liberated, that you've been set free, and you know it. How do you know it? Because you keep practicing sin. Your behavior hasn't changed. Your habits haven't changed. You know you're not acting as you ought. You know you're not acting as you should. And it frustrates you. It frustrates you. You've, you've tried several things and you can't seem to be liberated from the habits you know you shouldn't have. Friend, I want to encourage you. Hear the words of Jesus. The Son is here to set you free to give you the truth about his death and resurrection, to liberate you from sin. He desires to not see you live in bondage anymore, to experience brokenness anymore. He wants you to know the joy of living under God's design, of experiencing God's blessing as you obey him. He wants to liberate you, to free you from the power of sin and death that is over you. Come to him and be liberated. 
Your chains are too strong for you to break. But he can break them. And he will break them if you ask him to. Believe that he is everything that he said he was. That he was the son of God who died for your sins and rose again from the grave. Believe in him and he will liberate you. That truth about who he is will set you free. And as Jesus said, you will be free. Free indeed. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh Christ, we thank you that you have liberated us. That you have freed us. That sin and death no longer reign over us. That we are not bound to our sinful habits anymore. We are not mastered anymore. That invisible enemy that, that, that controlled our behaviors, that, 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 that forced us into bad habits, he has been taken away. We have been made new. We have been set free. Oh, Father, I thank you for sending your Son to liberate us, to free us. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us as followers of Jesus Christ. Father, please, please, Protect our voice. May our character not compromise the clarity of our message. It's hard. This pandemic is is a pressure cooker. It feels constant, the pressure on us. Gradually growing day after day after day, and we reach a breaking point. Oh, Father, give us endurance. Give us long suffering. Father, none of us, none of us want to compromise the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of us do. So, Father, we ask that you keep us because we are beyond our abilities. We are beyond our endurance. We need supernatural strength. And not for our sake, but for the sake of those around us who don't yet know you. Oh, Father, keep our message clear. Keep our character intact. May we not compromise the integrity of what we say by what we do. And Father, for those who who don't yet know you, or maybe those who thought they knew you, but knew really inside that they did not, and they have not, that the decision that they made was an emotional one, but not one that they've truly been living in line with. Oh, Father, I pray. I pray for those hundreds, hundred million almost, Americans that are leaning on a religion that they profess, but one they don't live by. Oh, Father, would you bring them to yourself? Bring them to a moment of clarity. Let them have a conversation with Jesus like, like the one we see in John 8. But may they respond better than the audience did in John 8. May they see that the liberator is before them. Christ is before them. And he is here to set them free from sin and death. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you again next Sunday.